Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest, guest is self-confessed surf flatterer and author Nick Place. Nick, welcome. Hi Maggie, how are you? Good, thanks. Nick is the author of um, most recently The OK Team and also Kazillion Wishes and um, or the Kazillion Wish and its follow-up as well. And yep. it's um, so, Nick, just before we get started having a, a conversation, um, can you read us a little bit um, from the OK team, just to give the readers a feel for your book? Sure, I'd love to. Um, okay, well, the OK team, I should just, I'll sort of have to explain a little bit. It's about a guy called Hazy Reckner, who is born out of focus. Um, so he basically, when he's scared or nervous or anything, like if you look at him, he's slightly out of focus, a bit out of whack, as though you're you know, a bit blurry around the edges. But when he gets really nervous or scared or anything, he completely kind of molecularly dissolves and becomes a cloud, basically, and can fall through walls and things like that. So he's grown up his whole life. He's now 13, um, and he thinks that he's a complete freak. And, of course, everyone at school laughs at him and stuff like that. But, in fact, he it's a bit that I'll read you. He's recently discovered that, in fact, this is a very low-level superpower, and technically he is, in fact, a superhero. And um, so he decides you know, take up a life of fighting crime. But unfortunately, he hasn't actually got any more powers than his standard dissolves at the first sign of trouble. So it's not exactly a, uh, a rocking superpower. So the bit I was going to read is actually where he decides to go to Heroes Anonymous, which is a uh, meeting of sort of new rookie, um, not quite coping superheroes um, at a Victoria. It's all set in Melbourne, by the way. So um, I think that's all you need to know. So we'll, we'll give it a go. And it's all from Hazy's point of view. He now calls himself Focus, by the way. Focus is his superhero, his superhero name. So is that enough, Maggie? Do you think, <laughs> think you've got some general yeah. to it there? Yeah. Okay, here we go. I'm standing in this creepy dark alley when I hear something overhead. It's hard to tell in the dark, but I think I see a black dot lurch across the sky and smack into the giant chimney of the power plant. Whatever it is slides down behind the massive wall, falling out of sight. I'm probably imagining it, but I think I hear a distant groan. I've been trying to get into the power station for more than 20 minutes. Of course, being loaded with dangerous radioactive chemicals and other hazards, and having been closed down more than 15 years before, the power station is surrounded by high walls and wire fences with barbed wire. Heroes Anonymous, a self-help branch of the Australian Federation of Hero Types, and specifically at New Heroes, works some theory that if you can't even get into an abandoned building, you have no right to be there anyway. HeroHints.com has told me where to be and when, but that doesn't help me get past the fence. In the end, pure luck solves my problem. I walk even further down the sinister alley trying to find some kind of crack in the thick brick wall when there's a crash. And by the time I swing around to see it's only a rat jumping out of a rubbish bin, I've received such a fright that my body blurs to the point of invisibility and I fall clean through the wall. I straighten my silver cape, now with black backing, run a hand through my mess of hair, adjust my mask and make sure the S is straight and black on my silver T-shirt. I'm also now wearing silver sprayed cargo pants. I figure so many pockets means I won't need a bulky utility belt. And hero officials can't frown about the jeans thing. I'm still in silver painted Dunlop volley shoes, but hopefully no one will notice. I want to look good for this meeting. I creep further into the power plant looking for heroes. A superhero is sitting in one of the chairs at the meeting place, shuffling through notes and obviously in charge. She has long, flying, very dark hair, and I'm most impressed to see she has what appear to be actual wings, like bird wings, but huge and dark brown. They flap slowly behind her, feathers bristling as she reads. She takes out a pen and notes something in the margin of a page. Four seats are vacant. The rest support nervous-looking heroes, wearing all sorts of colours and trying not to appear obvious as 
they check out one another's costumes. There's a girl who looks to be about 18 years old with three dots on her chest. Two middle-aged men are wearing matching black and white checked costumes. A guy who I guess is in his mid-twenties is wearing all purple, and I'm astonished to see a kid about my age. The kid is short and stocky and wearing a black bodysuit that looks to be baggy around the knees and shoulders with a red circle with yellow flames on the front. He's also wearing red shorts, red boots with yellow trim that was painted on, and he's sporting a big black crash helmet, like skateboarders might wear. A large bruise covers most of his cheek. I take the seat next to him and sneak a sideways glance at his outfit. He's sneaking a glance at mine. Hi, I say. Hi, says the kid. Nasty bruise. Pardon? I said that bruise looks nasty on your cheek. Are you okay? Oh, yeah, I'm as happy as a bowl of water, the kid says. Eventually, I have to ask, is that happy? Yeah, really happy, he says like I'm an idiot. Then he reaches up to touch his face and winces in pain. Did you get that bruise fighting a supervillain? The kid shifts in his seat. Actually, I just got it. I smacked into the chimney arriving here. Oh, that was you. I extend the silver glove. I'm ha- I mean, my name's Focus. The kid reluctantly shakes hands. Cannonball, hot bike. We sit for a moment. I find myself wondering all what heroes talk about. Cannonball saves me by asking, so, been a hero for long? I think about that line, but what would be the point? Actually, no, I found out about a week ago. You? Five weeks. Before that, I thought I was just a freak. You did? I can feel the relief flood through my body. I thought it was just me. Cannonball grins. I think everyone feels that way. That's why we're here, huh? And he's right. When the bird opens the meeting, she explains that Heroes Anonymous is a non-judgmental forum for new heroes. Those who just admitted they have powers or are having trouble admitting to being super people. The two guys in black and white, checks turn out to be the Crypto Twins, identical brothers where one has the power of only being able to talk in cryptic crossword puzzle clues, while his brother's power is he's the only one who can understand him. Lo, the vulture lands metally, devouring a cross, says one. The bird looks at his brother, an eyebrow raised. My brother says we're happy to discover we have powers, but we're unsure how to use them, he translates. And so it kind of goes, Maggie. The, uh, the other two people there, the girl with the dots can only talk in Morse code, and uh, the guy in purple turns out to be Berry Boy, who basically everything he tastes tastes like berry, no matter what he has. And, so and as you can see, they're pretty low-level heroes. And there's some dubious um, sorts of powers as well, but uh, I guess, you know, when you think about it, um, we're all kind of freaks, and we all have dubious powers of one sort or another. Is that Was that your thinking? Yeah, pretty much, um, especially because it's... Aimed at, um, it's aimed at sort of 9 to 13 year old. But I figure at that stage, yeah, exactly, that's when you most are concerned that you're the freak and you don't fit in and, you know, are you weird compared to everyone else? So it's absolutely talking about that. Um, I mean, Hazy's dad on the deep end of that because clearly he's been born uh, with this strange condition that everyone, you know, calls him, um, you know, all sorts of names at school. But, you know, yeah, for all of us. I mean, I think, yeah, I certainly still feel like that. I don't know about you. (laughs) (laughs) Just never occurred to me as a superpower. That's right. Everything I taste tastes like berries. So, (laughs) Did did you ever feel hazy at school? Um, Yeah, a little bit. That that sort of occurred to me a long time ago. That was an idea I had um, ages ago, which was like, what if you were born out of focus? How would that affect your life? Um, And it was funny because then it sort of got a quick mention in one of those Woody Allen films. I think it was Deconstructing Harry. Um, There was a Robin Williams kind of started to go out of focus during an audition. So I was kind of pleased that I was on the same wavelength as Woody Allen, but also kind of annoyed that it was this cool idea I'd had that was uh, picked up, you know, had been done. So um, I kind of put it away for a long time. And then after I'd done the, after I'd written 
the gazillion wish and thanks a gazillion. I want to have a crack at writing something. That's been a really strange fantasy world as well. And I've always loved superheroes, so I wanted to have a go at superheroes. And it's funny, you know, little Hazy was still sitting there. In fact, he was an adult when I first thought of him. So now that I was writing kids' books, it suddenly occurred to me, you know, why couldn't he be a, a young teenager? And in fact, once you swung in all that school stuff and kids laughing at you and all that, it, it actually made it much stronger. Mm. Yeah, yeah, certainly as a, you know, quite a, I guess, despite the um, tongue-in-cheek nature of the narrative, and it is quite a light, fun, easy book, but, you know, there is some deep stuff about fitting in going on as well, isn't there? Yeah, all my books tend to do that, actually. I, I kind of like to write with a with an underlying message without hitting kids over the head. I mean, The Cazillion Wishes, actually, it's immediately based on a true story, which is about a marriage breakup and a woman going to join a family. Um, there's two kids, Harlan and Ainsley, and their dad, and she's really worried about how she's going to be accepted. Um, as the sort of also mum, as I call it. So that's a very real issue about is she going to be accepted into a family? And I sort of swung that around to what if the kids have actually been wishing for someone to come along and make their dad happy? But I then I figure if I tried to write that as a book, no, no, no kid in the world's going to read it. So um, I sort of had to change that into this crazy fantasy comedy so the kids would hopefully be really engaged by it but still get the message that, you know, um, it's okay to, to wish for your parents to be happy and it sucks when they break up and you know, you, you would love to be able to do something about it, even though it's not your responsibility. And I guess with the OK team, yeah, there is this message of we all feel like freaks. There's a different level of freakness. You know, you just try and be the best you can possibly be, and you work with what you've got, and you you try to kind of, you know, yeah, be the be the best super, superhero you can in everyday life. But is there also, um, you know, for you as an author, um, some kind of wish fulfillment going on there? I mean, it'd be nice to find out suddenly that, uh, you know, we could fly or um, had some oh, yeah. great power. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. I've my entire life thinking, you know, which, which superpowers would I like to have? Um, yeah, for sure. Flying. In fact, I've, I'm, and I'm laughing at that a lot. I mean, Cannonball, who we just briefly met, he's, he becomes one of the OK team. And his power is that he can fly. Because flying, undoubtedly, amongst heroes would be the coolest power. Um, there's no doubt. I think if you ask anyone what their favourite power would be, most people would go for flying. Um, but unfortunately for Cannonball, he can only fly, you know, a few feet off the ground and sort of in no sense of direction. So he'll try to fly sort of, you know, in, over there to sort of a building way off in the distance and actually just smack into the wall behind him and nastily bump his head, which is why he wears the helmet around. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, wish fulfilment is a, you know, it's a good basis for a young adult book. I mean, certainly that's got to be part of the Potter appeal. You know, everybody secretly wants to find out that they've got some kind of power. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really true. I think that, um, you know, exactly, wouldn't it be cool? Imagine. And I, I think that was a genius of Harry Potter, just that sense of, you know, yeah, wow, I'm not only this kid a wizard, but he's the most incredible wizard in the world, and he didn't even know it. I mean, I think that that, that basic premise before she got to any of the other stuff, like all the really cool sort of, you know, minute details of that world, I think that was just a really brilliant premise. So, and I think you need that going to a book. You certainly need a strong, you certainly need a strong just underlying. This is what the book is about. Um, so, funnily enough, with the OK team, I had a lot of trouble writing the OK team. Uh, I actually threw it out at thirty-five thousand words. The book ended up being forty-five thousand, but at thirty-five thousand, I actually threw out the whole book and started again because I just wasn't happy with it. Um, and I realised that in fact Hazy had to tell the story, not me. I was writing in a third-person narrative, and I realised that it really had to be um, Hazy who told the story. And you know, I, and even then, it still wouldn't work. And I finally worked out that it was because I hadn't actually worked out what the book was about, which was about believing yourself is the underlying thing. And I just hadn't quite nailed that down. 
Um, but, you know, I think, yeah, like Harry said, there's such a strong underlying spine. And, you know, I've, I've realised over writing my now four books, because I've just finished the sequel to The OK Team, which comes out in October, um, I've just realised that that's what you, you really need as you head into a book. You need to know what, what this book is. Sure. And, and um, in terms of the next book, I'll ask you to a little bit later to give us just a bit of a hint um, of what we can expect to happen in that as well. Sure. But um, did you get many rejection letters before The Kazillion Wish was taken on by Alan and Unwin? Um, I've got a few, yeah. I don't, I don't know too many authors who haven't got a, a pile of those sitting in the corner. Um, the the Kazillion Wish itself only got one. I actually only gave it to two publishers. I sort of, I kind of worked out who I thought would be the most likely to like it, and I really managed to wiggle my way in there and get them to read it, which was a good effort. Um, and, you know, the one that I really, really thought would be the one to like it rejected it, which killed me, because I thought, you know, if they're not going to take it, no one will take it, and I'm totally screwed. Um, but then luckily, Alan and Unwin, the one that I tried, loved it. So they went. So in fact, the Kazillion Witch only got rejected once, but, you know, I guess that, I finished that book when I was about 37 years old and I'd been writing for quite a while and I had a lot of half-finished novels and I'd shown publishers kind of bits and pieces of books that were in development um, and a lot of them, you know, they all got knocked back. Which on reflection I think was totally reasonable. I think I've realised now that it works better for me to actually write the book and finish it and then, you know, polish it up and then show it to them as a, you know, first draft, but a pretty pretty decent first draft. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you were a journalist for quite a long time before you became a novelist, something like 20 years, right? Yeah, yeah, I have been. I still run a media company called Media Giants now. So um, I still pretty much work in journalism as my day job because, you know, I don't, you don't make anywhere near enough money out of the books to, um, to you know, kind of make a living out of it. Sure, yeah, and I, sh- I certainly understand that. <laughs> um, <laughs> do, do I think most authors do. <laughs> right. Um, but do you feel like journalism is a good apprenticeship for writing novels? Is there a, you know, do you see a relationship between those two quite different types of writing? Definitely. I think, um, I mean, one, I know that publishers love journalists writing books because I think journalists tend to write very clean copy. Um, you know, you don't tend to... You, you, because writing, like I started off on a daily newspaper, a daily afternoon paper, which meant that I was sometimes literally ringing up a person in the copy room and having to file off the top of my head down a phone line if they typed it in, and then it would be in the paper sort of within 15 minutes, you know, on the, on the block. So my training from when I was 17 was to write very clean, very correct copy, bang, with not many errors, um, which was amazing training. And I, even though that's now a million miles from the OK team, it, it still means that, you know, I don't tend to... I think my manuscripts, are, they don't have a, a lot of typos and grammar errors. And all. I mean, they have some, but not a lot. So I think even just at that level, it really works. The other thing, of course, is that I've, I've had a good look at the world. Um, when I was 20, 21, I was doing police rounds. And I was actually doing what they call the graveyard shift, which is between 2 a.m. and 10 a.m., where I basically cover murders, fatal car accidents, you know, occasionally a fire for life release. So that was pretty heavy. And, I mean, there's, there's amazing source material still tucked up in my head from then. And then I kind of became a sports writer and, you know, went to Wimbledon and all sorts of stuff, which was an amazingly fun career. But it also, yeah, it really gave me a look at lots of different people. I mean, one good thing about journalism is that you get to ask a lot of incredibly impertinent questions. You get to walk up to anyone. I've spoken to members of the British royal family. I've spoken to scientists. I've talked to sports stars, you know, and, and lots and lots and lots of everyday people. And you can just say, tell me about your world. Tell me about your life. Um, and I think the other thing, too, is that you really... 
you, you get all sorts of dialogue. People tell me that my dialogue in my books is really strong, and I'm sure if that's the case, it's because I just listen to the way people talk, and I've really spoken and interviewed so many people that you know there's a lot of authentic kind of voices in my head. I guess if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and I imagine you have quite a few good characters um, mulling about uh, there as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I look look for the Queen in the next book you write. <laughs> <laughs> I met her. I met one of the or like it was actually Mark Phillips, uh, who then was um, Princess Anne's husband, who was incredibly boring too. He actually that was what it told me. That people are so trained to the mission of their life not to uh, not to say anything that it was actually shocking guy to have a conversation with, which actually might turn up in a book because I thought that was fascinating. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's nothing more interesting than a boring character. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, I've got a, there's a couple of characters in the Kazini which which are kind of related to that. It's a couple of Martians. There's actually a moment where Harlan and Ainsley meet two Martians. And I set up this whole thing where, in fact, they're going to meet two people from another planet. And this is a huge moment because, you know, as far as they know, they might be the first people from Earth ever to speak to, to Martians. And it's a massive moment. And within minutes of the conversation starting, they kind of are trying to sort of say, well, well, we better go because these guys are so boring that they actually are just almost incapable of holding the conversation. So I sort of did muck around with that once on print. (laughs) Now, I've got a question for you that um, comes from one of my children who's read your book. Um, um, Yeah, you've got a reputation for writing books that are, you know, particularly good for reluctant readers. And, and um, both of us noticed, he's a, he's a male, um, that your books are definitely male-oriented, certainly the OK team. You know, I don't know if you can always call a book um, a male or female type book, but I, I feel like the OK team is a real male book. Um, huh. did, did you feel that? Do you, do you, do you disagree? <laughs> yeah, actually, not really. I mean, Alan and Owen published it, they, they marketed it very much as books for boys, um, but I certainly don't write thinking like that. I have a couple of boys, so maybe that is a, a natural thing for me, that that's quite through that I'm used to dealing with my two boys. But it's funny because, you know, um, all three of my books now, I kind of have always made an effort to try and make sure it's not just boy exclusive. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, I do get that feedback, and like I said, Alan Rumman actually very deliberately set out to say, okay, theme books for boys. Maybe it's because superheroes are such a boy thing. You know, I mean, maybe there's just not that many girls who are into superheroes. However, having said that, I mean, you know, I'm absolutely sure that there's lots of good female superheroes floating around in the book. I didn't want it to be an all-male cast. So there's Wirebird, a girl who her power is that um, she can only speak lies. She can't tell the truth. So if you say, you know, are you a girl, she'll say no. Is it daytime? No, it's night when it's clearly the sun shining. And uh, there's also Yesterday, the girl who can see into the past. So there's quite a few kind of girls float around in the book. And I try to give them equal weight. I certainly don't try to make them side characters. I, you know, I like to think that they're in there. They're, well, they're equally as crap as Tazy and his other mates. Yes, and I suppose there's a bit of love interest there as well with Tazy. Uh, and um, that's also <laughs> part, part of his character development, isn't it? Yeah, well, it is. I mean, again, once I once I settled on him being 13, all those sort of things suddenly really kicked in. Um, and it's an incredibly awkward, terrified kind of crush love interest, which, you know, it's not a very sophisticated love interest and it's sort of barely even there. And, you know, all of that stuff was fun to play with once I really settled on them being sort of school-age kids because all of that stuff then flows around, you know. Poor old, poor old Cannonball, actually, you know, he's his uniform's a little bit baggy because, like, he sort of, they made it with his room for him to grow into it, you know, which is a very embarrassing thing when you're a kid and you have to wear around, you know, hand-me-downs or whatever, and it's so you've got room to go into them, so they're swapping around you. 
So, you know, all of that stuff then became potential in the book. And, and I suppose if you're into superheroes, you, you can imagine that floppy tights would be probably one of the biggest issues you have to deal with. <laughs> yeah, yes, and chafing. Oh, it's hilarious. I, I, can, I mean, I, I love superheroes and I always have, but that, that to me is part of the fun. I mean, they're so ridiculous. And that's, you know, I don't know, they have all these massive comic conventions where people take superheroes way too seriously. And I love them, but they are just ridiculous. People walking around with their underpants outside their tights and wearing, you know, capes and all that stuff. It's just silly. And so, you know, that silliness is something that I uh, I'm always determined to play with and continue to. <laughs> sure. So um, now tell me a little bit about Media Giants. It's um, more or less commercial writing, isn't it? Yeah, we we actually set up as an e-content company back in 1998, which was uh, ahead of the curve. And um, we do we do a few coffee table books. We recently did a book on 50 years of TV in Australia, and we do we do sort of print products as well. But most of our work is actually for the internet. So where we do articles, we do um, video, we do all sorts of content for you know for clients. Um, Australian rules football over here is huge, so we write all the content for AFL.com.au. And we do, you know, web webcast shows for that as well, which is basically TV shows, you know, standard quality um, for the web. So it's fun. It's a really fun development for my career because it's, I worked in TV for quite a while and having worked in newspapers and all, it's the net kind of where it all comes together, which is really interesting. And I imagine that you've got, um, you know, various deadlines and it's probably quite imperative. Um, do you sometimes find it hard to allocate enough time and priorities to, you know, getting on with the, the novel where, you know, there's less pressure? From a time point of view, oh, absolutely, yeah. That's a that's a constant pressure for me. I mean, you know, I'm I'm just so envious when you any time I read some author who you know gets to do it full time. I'm just so envious because, yeah. In fact, I went recently to a um, there was an exhibition of Pixar artwork and how Pixar come up with their films, um, and which you know they have the Incredibles too, so they're in the superhero kind of uh, set that I you know have played in, and it was actually. Well, I mean, I love Pixar films, but it was wildly, wildly depressing. The way the resources and the time and the effort that they have. I mean, they have a whole, you know, they just had a whole bunch of artists and creatives who worked for a few months on just kind of drawing pictures of superheroes and mood sort of pictures and action pictures just to sort of get, get a sense of what their heroes might end up being. And they had this incredible creative process with millions of dollars behind it to develop this whole concept. And, uh, you know, I was, I was kind of depressed but also laughing, thinking, you know, at the end of the day, the OK team sales out there is another superhero product that will live or die, but will go, nah, not as good as The Incredibles, or nah, better than The Incredibles. And, you know, here I am kind of, basically, yeah, writing, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, having put in a huge day at work and, you know, put the kids to bed and everything and then trying to spark up the creativity. It's just so unfair. But, I mean, I kind of like that challenge as well. It's It's quite kind of... A very cool thing if you actually manage to pull it off. It's um, you know, it's sort of all power. You can really, really actually feel good about having somehow miraculously created something. And it's another thing I love about J.K. Rowling, by the way. Getting back, to her, you know, that's that's the biggest thing for me that I love her success because, you know, that whole story about how, which I'm sure has been embellished over time, but the fact that she was a single mother who had this idea for these books and. It would have been so easy for her to just go and get a job as an assistant teacher or as a teacher or, you know, she could have got some sort of job and basically looked after herself and the kid and paid the rent and it would have remained this sort of wish that, you know, was unfulfilled. And actually, the thing I most love about J.K. Rowling is that she actually had the guts and the determination to say, no, I want to write this book, that's what I want 
my boo, and she she did, and then she had the 17 rejection letters or whatever she had, and yet Harry still happens, and I just think that's fantastic. And you know, I think authors everywhere are wildly envious of her success, but at the same time, I mean, good on her for actually getting herself into that position. And a lot of authors, I don't know about you, Meg, you talk to more authors than I do probably, but it seems to me that that's a common thing. In fact, there's a there's a real determination to be a storyteller, despite all the real world pressures. People who end up publishing books just really, really have a burning sort of need to actually get their story out there. Yeah, I think maybe can't help it. It's probably the best. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> because it's, you know, there, there is no, you know, the pay, as you mentioned, the pay is low. There are a million other people calling your name. Um, nobody's really calling your name for the book, but they're calling you for all sorts of other things. Um, so, you know, it is. I think tenacity is the one key thing that, that writers seem to have in common. Yeah, I say that to I say that when I give talks all the time. I say no one actually cares. Like even you know my family, my kids, my workmates, everyone around me, the publisher even. No one actually deeply cares if Nick Place ever writes another book. I mean, I'll get better than okay the, the next okay team book out there by October. If I then sort of said, well, that's it for me. I'm not writing it anymore. The world definitely keeps turning, and you know, Alan Rumlin won't have a problem finding other people to publish, and. and no one cares apart from me whether I keep writing books or not. And I, I kind of like that, but it is actually, you're absolutely right. It's its a tenacity that you have to be the one who keeps yourself going. It's absolute self-starting because there's no, there's no reason to do it other than that, that wish to, to keep writing books and telling stories. That's right. And there are plenty of reasons not to do it. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> so um, tell me a little bit. We've got, we've got four minutes left, believe it or not. But um, okay. tell me a little bit about the next OK Team book, Make Us Want It. Well, basically, the, the point of the OK team is that they, you know, I, I gave them all powers that could improve, you know, Cannonball um, not being able to fly very well. Well, hopefully he can start to learn. And in fact, a guy called Mr. Fabulous, who's one of the original Golden Age heroes from the late 30s, comes out to Australia to kind of coach the OK team um, as his crusty old mentor. Doing better than OK. They are a little bit better. They've, they've started to pick it up. They're, they're improving. Um, but that leads to sort of other issues. They, they're getting into a slightly deeper end of the superhero, supervillain world. Um, some are improving more than others, which leads to jealousy. And, you know, some of the heroes or some of the villains they're facing now are kind of tougher, harder villains. So there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of ego issues, a lot of self-confidence issues. Um, you know, it's a lot of... They're, they're still sort of wrapped up in all these things, very childlike sort of, or, you know, teenage issues. But, yeah, it's getting more serious. There's actually more, more stakes, I guess. Could you see yourself continuing on with um, Hazy or Focus in the team for, you know, uh, multiple books? Yeah, I'd sort of always planned that it would be a three-book series, I guess. I, I can't see myself writing sort of OK Team 15. I think that I think that the arc of them trying to turn into genuine heroes just wouldn't last that long. Um, you know, I guess if you decide to make a TV show where the OK Team is the OK Team, you could just stay in that space. But in, in what I'm doing, I've sort of always pictured that it would be a three-book series. Um, you know, hopefully... The first one sells well enough that you know they commission the third one and I can complete that arc. Yeah, and and maybe Pixar takes it on, then it could become an animated series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, amen. Actually, at one stage, Hardman were looking at uh, the in Witch, which was wildly exciting. The thought of you know following Wallace and Gromit onto sort of the screen, but uh, I haven't heard anything for a while, so I think that one must have fallen through. But briefly, that would have rocked. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get you get all that power behind you. Yeah, I know that'd be handy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so just tell us before we run out of time um, about the website and how uh, interested readers can find out a little bit more about you and, and interact, etc. 
Okay, sure. Well, there's a, a website, kazinianwish.com, uh, which is sort of based around the Kazinian Wish books. But there's also herohints.com, which is a site that Heidi, when he becomes a superhero, he actually gets access to herohints.com, which is, as it says, a sort of website for for new heroes to get tips and advice and the hero blog and all this sort of stuff. So you can actually get on there. I've basically created, or Alan Lumman and I created it, so that kids can kind of hack Heidi's account and get in there and have a kick around that. So I've actually made this real website for, for would-be heroes. Um, and that's probably the best way to check it out. You know, there's actually a couple more sort of uh, samples of the book on there. And then if you actually use the username and password, which is within that sample, you can get in and check out sort of what's going on. There's hero classifieds and, you know, wanted ads and all sorts of stuff in there. It's fun. That sounds great. And yeah. um, what, what other sort of projects can we look forward to seeing you? Um, I'm definitely still working on, you know, I'd love to write a, a good sort of comic but dangerous sort of um, detective kind of novel, uh, maybe in the Elmore Leonard kind of line of things. So I'll probably try and write some adult fiction, which is what I was originally writing for because I didn't wish to cough and suddenly I was a children's writer. So I'll probably try and have another crack at that. Um, and, you know, I work on a few film scripts here and there. I've made a short film, which, you know, went pretty well a few years ago, so I might have another go at one of those. I'm just playing, basically. That's a good thing about media giants. You know, that's what that's what pays the rent. So I can I never put any financial pressure on the fiction. I just play and hope it hope it flies. Wonderful, <laughs> terrific. That's all for today. Um, Thanks, Maggie. Thank you so much, Nick. Thanks, uh, me on. Next month, um, live from France, we have Howard Waldman, whose novel Good Americans Go to Paris When They Die defies all genres. I simply cannot tell you what genre it's in um, because it's one of those busters. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks again, Nick, and um, we'll speak to you all soon. Good luck with the sequel. Thanks, Maggie. Cheers. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.